I think there's a lot of people that would benefit by being more intentional with their diet. Most people can get to reproductive age and pass on their DNA eating um, crap in a bag, but I think very few people are, are really living as well as they, as they could. Solved a problem I've had for 30 years. Check out this amazing testimonial and review on mood, memory, and brain from Heart and Soil Supplements. I've had excoriation disorder, skin picking disorder for as long as I can remember, picking the skin on my fingers until they bleed. In elementary school, I was teased because I often had Band-Aids on almost every finger. And when I worked as a nurse, it killed me to have to wash my hands between patients because of the open wounds. I've tried other supplements with no results. I started taking mood, memory, and brain with no real expectations. I didn't notice anything obvious until a couple of weeks in, I realized there were no open sores on my fingers. I was only half convinced that it was mood, memory, and brain, which had helped, but then I went out of town for two weeks and forgot it. Within the first week, I started picking at my fingers again. This stuff works. I work in psychiatry and will be recommending it to my patients with excoriation disorder. Thanks, Dr. Saladino. This is so cool that a desiccated brain, this is desiccated cow brain from grass-fed cattle in New Zealand, along with grass-fed liver and bone marrow, immune memory and brain, and these helped this person improve their psychiatric disorder with skin picking. We also know that desiccated brain from cows helps people with cognitive decline. There have been randomized controlled trials with the exact stuff that is in that helping with cognitive decline. So if you need better focus, better motivation, any of these issues, consider adding some organs to your life in the form of mood, memory, and brain from Heart and Soil Supplements. You can find us at heartandsoil.co where you can find the full line of desiccated organ supplements, the finest on the planet, always in glass, from grass-fed, grass-finished regenerative cows in New Zealand. Our mission is to help you reclaim your optimal health and birthright to that optimal health. What a cool anecdote. In the podcast this week, I had my good friend, Ken Berry. I've known Ken Berry for probably five years since I started my carnivore journey. I've had him on the podcast multiple times in the past, but not in a few years. Since the last time I talked to Ken, our thoughts have diverged a little bit, but I think healthy conversation about what we agree on and what we don't agree on is so good for the, the community. It moves the narrative forward in a productive way. So Ken was willing to come on. We talked about how he's not eating vegetables anymore, his carnivore diet, and we talked about meat and fruit. We talked about honey. We have differing views there. So we really got into some interesting, respectful discussion around the things that we agree on and we don't agree on. And ultimately, we came to this idea that there's probably some bioindividuality here. Imagine that. For some people, adding fruit and honey to their diet may work really well. For me, it worked really well to help me with muscle cramps, some fatigue, some coldness. I was cold in San Diego. My hormones were declining. I had sleep issues. All those things got better when I added back carbohydrates. And as I mentioned in this podcast with Ken, you can go to carnivoremd.com right now and see the full free macronutrient calculator to get a sense of where your macros, fat, protein, and carbohydrates may be on an animal-based diet, which is what I think is gonna work for a lot of people, but maybe it doesn't work for everyone. That's what we're trying to understand. So if you think of metrics like your subjective experience and fasting insulin as good, hard metrics to see how you're doing on any particular diet, try keto, try an animal-based diet, add back those carbohydrates in the form of fruit and honey. And if you wanna know how much, check out that animal-based calculator at carnivoremd.com. Ken and I both agree you need organs in your life. 
like smooth memory and brain or whatever kind of organs you want to get, get fresh if you can. If you can't, there's always heart and soil for you. So also, last but not least, kale is bullshit. Ken and I definitely both agree that kale is bullshit. You can find the shirts. We've got a seed oils or bullshit shirt at kaleisbullshit.shop. I'm going to be in Austin, Texas, mid-November, and I hope I see some of you in the Whole Foods and some Whole Foods in Austin, Texas, wearing the shirts and letting the world know that kale is bullshit and that seed oils are bullshit at kaleisbullshit.shop. Also want to give a shout out to my friends who are the sponsors of this podcast. Got to start with White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. Ken and I both agree in this podcast, well-raised meat, grass-fed, grass-finished, just like they make at White Oak, is what we should make the majority of our diet. That's why I think an animal-based diet works, and that's why it's called an animal-based diet. White oak is regenerative also. They do rotational grazing. The meat is delicious. They have organs. You can get your fresh organs there. They have corn and soy-free chickens. They have eggs. They have pork, and they have lamb and other animals. So check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. Here are the discount codes. CarnivoreMD gets you 10% off on your first order at White Oak Pastures. Carnivore 5 gets you 5% off recurring orders that is special for listeners of this podcast, of the Fundamental Health Podcast at White Oak Pastures. That is Carnivore MD for 10% off your first order, Carnivore 5 for 5% off recurring orders at whiteoakpastures.com. Salt. I love Kalima sea salt. You can get a free bag at drpaulsalt.com. You guys know I'm not a fan of microplastics, whether it's in fish. Ken and I talk about that in this week's episode or in my salt. There's 8 million tons of plastic garbage in the ocean every year. It's so sad for me as a surfer, but that's where our table salt comes from, at least the sea salt. All those little salt granules can form around pieces of plastic. So anytime you're putting salt on your food, you can be eating little pieces of plastic. No bueno, guys. Horrible, horrible idea. We do not want that, which is why I really appreciate Kalima sea salt. Now, Kalima sea salt is from the Kalima salt flats in Mexico. There are salineros. These are workers who harvest this stuff by hand, and it's freaking delicious. It's crunchy. It's some of the best salt I've ever had in my life, and it's free of ocean-borne microplastics. They've had studies that show this. 90% of all salt tested has them, but not Kalima. So go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag of Kalima salt. All right, and I want to give a shout-out to my friends at higherdose.com, Higher Dose. You can use the promo code Paul to save 15% off or go to higherdose.com front slash Paul to save 15% off. So heal at home or on the go with Higher Dose's infrared therapy line. So Higher Dose makes infrared sauna blankets and they make infrared PEMF mats. The PEMF mats come in two sizes, a full size one and an abbreviated size one that you can even put in the chair at an office or anything like that. I've got one here in my office for my podcast. And the PMF, which stands for Pulse Electromagnetic Field Mat, is really cool. It works by sending electromagnetic waves through your body at different frequencies to promote your body's recovery process. You feel relaxed, regrounded, rebalanced. They're built with a thick layer of 100% natural purple amethyst crystals in the mesh fabric across the entire mat. Like I said, the smaller mat fits on a chair. You can use it when you're stretching, doing yoga, chilling, listening to an audiobook, whatever. So uh, go to higherdose.com front slash Paul. Use the promo code Paul and save 15% at checkout. That's higher dose, H-I-G-H-E-R-D-O-S-E.com front slash Paul uh, to get 15% off their infrared sauna blankets or one of the PEMF mats. Last but not least, Bond Charge. My friends at Bond Charge, you can go to bondcharge.com, B-O-N, 
C-H-A-R-G-E.com. Use the coupon code CARNIVOREMD to save 15% off EMF reducing, EMF protecting implements in your house. What kind of implements am I talking about? Well, the computer I am working on right now is a laptop, but I would never put it on my lap because I know that this computer is emitting significant amounts of EMFs. And we don't really know what those do to human sperm or to human testicles or to human ovaries or to your kids. And so I have this awesome EMF protecting mat. It's an EMF blocking mat from Bond Charge under my computer. I can put it under my computer while I'm working to protect me from the EMFs from the computer, if, especially if my computer's on my lap or I'm traveling with my computer on an airplane. You can put it under your kids' computers if they're working on their laps or protect them from iPad radiation. If they're using iPads or something, you can use the mat. And it's really great and portable. And I think it's an amazing thing to have if you have a laptop. Everyone with a laptop should have one of these EMF blocking mats. I also have EMF reducing earbuds. They have wires because those are cool these days because the AirPods, the Bluetooth AirPods, that's a lot of EMF going straight into your head all the time, something I'm not a fan of. So you can get an EMF reducing laptop protecting pad or these EMF earbuds, these EMF reducing earbuds from Bond Charge, B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 15% off. They also do uh, awesome blue light blocking glasses and many other cool things. So check them out, bondcharge.com. On to the podcast, guys. Love you all. Dr. Ken Barry, thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. It's a pleasure to talk to you again, doctor. Good to see you. It's been too long. I know, man. I know. It's been a while. All right, Ken, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, I haven't eaten yet. I had a cup of coffee with some butter in it and some salt and some mineral drops, but I'll probably eat about 4 or 5 p.m. local time, depending. And what's what's going to be dinner? Oh, gosh. I've got some uh, beef sauce, uh, beef pork meatballs. I've got some uh, steak chili in there. And I've got some uh, uh, tuna egg salad. So it'll probably be some combination of that plus some extra egg yolks thrown in. Okay. What's your diet like these days in general? Are you that's, eating? That's it. Literally meat. Beef, mostly meat and beef. eggs. Uh -huh. Beef and eggs. That's the vast majority. Probably 90% of my diet. Then there's some uh, definitely some seafood thrown in occasionally, purposefully. Um, some, uh, pork occasionally, depending on the cut, uh, occasionally some chicken thighs or chicken legs, but that's maybe once a week. Okay. When was your last blood work? Well, I'm curious about fasting insulin because, yeah, and, and, you know, people, when we eat this way, we eat similarly, slightly differently, which I'm sure we'll talk about in this podcast. But when we eat this way, a lot of people say, oh, your blood work must look horrible. So I'm just curious if you have any, any blood work. I, my last that we blood can... work was a couple of years ago, and my fasting insulin was two point something, and uh -huh. my uh, C peptide was three point something, both uh -huh. of which I'm pretty happy with. My A1C was five point three, five point four, somewhere like that. I'm scheduled. I'm going to have it done in the next week or two, and I'll definitely post that for you know, all around so everybody to see, because you're exactly right. Many people who have bought the, the plant-based mythology think, well, oh my God. And now I'll also tell you uh, my, my uh, total cholesterol was yes. 350 and my, uh -huh. my LDL cholesterol was 250, but my triglycerides okay. and HDL were pristinely perfect. And so I really, I'm not worried about the, the elevated LDL or total cholesterol at all. Uh, but in the next week or two, I'll have labs done again, and uh, I will post them for all to ruminate upon. 
I think there's such an interesting thing for people to see those of us doing the diet with, with bigger platforms, kind of putting it out there and saying, Hey, this is what my blood work looks like. Um, my recent fasting insulin, I think was 2.9 or three also. Um, and my cholesterol is interesting. So a while ago, when I first added honey back to my diet, I'm sure we'll talk about that on this podcast. My LDL went up to 500 for a little bit. And I talked about it on Joe Rogan, but at this point, like the last couple of, of lipid panels I've done, and I've done both NMR for LDL particle counts and uh, regular lipid panels with LDL and HDL and triglycerides and milligrams per deciliter. My LDL is around 170 milligrams per deciliter. My HDL is about uh, 65 or 70, and my triglycerides are about 75. Um, did you mention I? Did you mention your HDL and, and triglycerides? Those would be interesting. Yeah, my, to hear my too. HDL and triglycerides were both in the in the high 60s. So. Okay. Kind of like traditionally, I, you know, I, I had a clinic for over 20 years. And so I routinely yeah. checked my labs and I used to be one of those guys. I, I, I kind of have a, a heritable trait where I, if, especially if I'm eating a shitty diet, my HDL will be very low uh, in the thirties. And so that's, that's where I came from. So for me to get, be able to get my HDL up in the sixties, uh, even in the fifties is, is just with diet alone. Uh, I think it's probably diet and lifestyle both. Uh, but that's, I'm very happy with that. And uh, as you know, there's no FDA approved medication that raises HDL in any meaningful way whatsoever. Although big pharma has spent millions, if not billions of dollars trying to come up with a drug that will raise your HDL, but also not increase morbidity and mortality. And they've yet to come up with the drug. And I think that's part of the reason for that is the, the inherent complexity of human biochemistry and physiology. You, the HDL molecule is such an important molecule and the whole cholesterol cascade is so important that when you screw with it pharmaceutically, it's just, and I think the HDL, the fact that they have not patented an HDL raising medication, I think that's very telling that, 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 that is an improper, you shouldn't be messing with that at all. And I, I would opine that you shouldn't be messing with LDL cholesterol pharmaceutically either. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's such a controversial topic. Um, maybe we'll have time to circle back to LDL in this one, but for now, we'll just I'll just ask you, you know, do you worry, you know, maybe you could give me the 45 second summary of how you think about a patient's lipids. Yeah. Uh, do you just do you just look at LDL or are there other things that you use to create some context? I'm just curious. Well, I typically check an NMR lipoprofile, profile. So I get all uh -huh. the particle sizes and 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 uh, uh densities. But I also don't put a lot of uh, weight on that because many doctors, most people and many doctors don't realize that those findings, even though there's a normal range posted on the lab, those are, those are still theoretical and experimental. They have not stood the test of time being proven time and time again to be meaningful, right? And so probably you want a very fluffy particles. You want, you know, the, the, you want a lower particle number. That's probably true, but I don't think we know that for a fact, but I think we've been checking triglycerides and HDL cholesterol long enough, and there's enough research to verify that with, without question, having a high HDL and a low triglyceride, I think that, that it's inarguably a very healthy place to be. And as much research that has been done on LDL cholesterol, both published and unpublished, and that's, that's very important. 
I, I think that the fact that we still can't prove definitively that an elevated LDL cholesterol is a is causes is is causative of heart disease. Like even even the the studies that purport to show that causation are weak, weak, weak studies and show only, in most cases, a possible association between elevated LDL. And so even the the lipidologists are are increasingly backing away from, oh, high LDL causes heart disease. You, you know, put statins in the water. I think that's quickly becoming unpopular in the more learned part of the lipidology community for, for good reason, because as much research that has been done by companies who stand to profit billions, multiple billions of dollars, they can't prove it. And so I think that's very telling. And so the, the numbers that with a patient that I focus on are uh, a, A1C, C-peptide, fasting insulin, triglycerides, HDL. Those are for me. And then also waist to height ratio. Uh, those are the, the, the markers of metabolic health. Now, there are many other labs that I check for, you know, kind of holistically looking at the whole person. But I think if you're able to get those five labs in the sweet spot with your with diet and lifestyle, that's it. You have achieved metabolic health. Now, people achieve that and they're still overweight. Very few people achieve it and remain uh, technically obese, right? But there are many people who have achieved that still being overweight, some normal weight, some underweight. And But I think that uh, as you know, there's a normal distribution curve. Some people call it a bell curve, but that's got such a negative connotation now. Let's call it a normal distribution curve. For every aspect of human behavior, physiology, activity, performance, there is a normal distribution curve where the majority of people fall into the fat part of the curve. And then there's some people over here on this tail and some people over on this tail and that's that's a normal distribution curve, and that first word's very important. And so, uh, human beings are, by definition, the fattiest primate on the planet. We are supposed to have a higher degree of body fat than any other primate on the planet. And there are multiple reasons for that. And and uh, anthropologists, paleoanthropologists, evolutionists, they talk about this at at length that this is the way we're supposed to be. And so. Uh, Many people don't understand that. They think, no, if I don't, if I can't see the vasculature in my lower abdominal muscles, then I'm still too fat. I'm over fat. I'm not as healthy as I could be. I need to look like that that woman or that man on the cover of Muscle and Fitness magazine, or Flex, or I don't know what the I used to read them religiously, but I don't know which one's the most popular now. But that's not that is not a picture of optimal human health. Uh, and so, as long as you've got those five markers in the sweet spot not just in the normal range, because, you know, most reference labs will call a, a fasting insulin of 20. They'll call that normal. And I don't. I was going to ask you. All. Yeah. I and so ask I think you, yeah. The, there's, there's a normal range for those labs, but there's also an optimal range for those labs. And in the little book that Kim Howerton and I wrote, I think I got a copy here somewhere. I don't know where it is, but it's called Common Sense Labs. Uh, and we talk about not only what's normal, but what's optimal. And for many tests, uh, the average doctor has no clue that a, that a fasting insulin of 20, 21, 22, they're like, oh, that's that's normal. That's good. And that may be normal, but that's not optimal. And so those five markers are the ones I want you to have not only within normal limits, but in the optimal sweet spot. For, uh, I, and I think those are the, the time proven 
looks at metabolic health. If you hit the sweet spot on those five plus the waist to height ratio, then you are as metabolically healthy as you probably can be and probably need to be. Even what do if you're you think still of, a little overweight. What do you think of as an optimal fasting insulin? That was what I was going to ask you. Yeah. I'd like to see it under five uh, for sure. And then, you know, we always have to think about the type one diabetics and, and folks who've de- developed LADA and the other adult onset type one type uh, conditions. Uh, you know, if someone's eating a low carb diet, as long as their fasting insulin is above 0.5, they're going to be fine. They're not going to need any exogenous insulin. So 0.5 to five, somewhere in there and and probably two or three being the absolute sweet spot. And if you're eating too many carbohydrates in your diet, then your fasting insulin is not going to be that low. And I think, again, the, the normal distribution curve, the more I study uh, cell molecular biology, the more I study anthropology, the more I study comparative primate anatomy, like literally going down the animal, animal biology, human biology, primate biology rabbit holes, uh, the more it becomes very, very obvious that humans are by design, we're low carbohydrate mammals. If you feed us too many carbohydrates, we will start to get sick. We'll start to store too much fat and we'll get above that, that healthy fat threshold and our health and our performance starts to suffer because of that. Okay, interesting. I, let's bookmark that for just one second, and we'll come back to the carbohydrate thing, because I really want to get into that um, in, in relation to uh, some ideas that we have that are slightly different. Um, the average fasting insulin, I think, in the United States is 8.6 for men and 8.4 for women, micro IU per ml. I just find that interesting. And I agree with you in terms of those reference ranges. I haven't often talked about the low end of fasting insulin. A lot of times doctors will look at a fasting insulin of two or three in someone that is very insulin sensitive, somebody in one of our communities and say, oh, you might have type one diabetes, which is just a little crazy. I just think they've never seen people who are that insulin sensitive. Right. And as you, as you point out, if you have type one diabetes, as long as your fasting insulin is 0.5 or a little higher, you have you have some insulin there that's, that's working. We need insulin in our bodies to do, to do many important things. But you and I both know that 87 to 90% of the U.S. population has at least one risk factor for metabolic dysfunction. So I think that gives some context to the average, you know, the middle of that, that, that normal distribution, the Gaussian distribution curve that you're talking about. If the middle of that curve is 8.9 and 90% of people have at least one risk factor for metabolic syndrome, we can say, uh, it probably should be significantly lower than 8.6 or 8.4 for men and females respectively. So yeah. I'm actually, I'm, I'm sure you've seen research that, that talks about that average. I haven't seen that, but I would be shocked if, it, if you took a thousand U S citizens, uh, adult U S citizens and you check their fasting insulin, I would be shocked if the average was eight, I, I would expect it to be 12 or higher, but you, I'm sure you have research that you've seen. And maybe, maybe it's, you know, maybe that was 2016 or 2017 research, but who knows? And maybe the population they studied, but I think you're right. If anything, it's, it's at least that high. It could even be, be higher. So a lot of people want to lose weight, Ken. Why do you think most diets fail? Well, I think most diets fail because we, the, the, the tenets of the average diet that's promoted by the average doctor or dietitian is a calorie restriction diet. 
and they're, they're going off the one of the laws of thermodynamics that they misunderstand. They think that applies to human digestion and human biochemistry. And it does not. It does not because the human body is not a closed system. Our body is an open system. Uh, for example, my, my skin is being exposed to the ambient temperature of the air in this room right now, which is too cold for Nisha, but just right for me. That, that means I'm open to the air. That actually ha- that affects all the calculations that you would try to do to figure up my caloric needs, my caloric intake. Secondly, a calorie is a unit of heat measurement. It's not a unit of digestive measurement. It's not, that's not even what it's really meant for. You can roughly approximate the caloric value of foods, uh, some foods, with how much energy we're going to get from them. But uh, you and I both know you can't, you can't count the calories and protein. That's ridiculous. You're, it's idiotic to try to pretend that you can do that. Many people forget that, that fat, they, they were, you know, so people are like, well, you can't count the, pro- the, the protein calories calorie for calorie because we use that to build with and repair with. Well, we also use fat for hundreds of things in the human body. It's not just a fuel source. We can burn fat very efficiently for fuel, but we also use it to to make and remake and repair and rebuild every cell membrane in our body. We make all of the hormones from the from the pregnenolone cascade down uh, with Fat with with cholesterol, we use that fat to build things with. We use fat to repair the myelin sheath of every single axon in our body. And so, if you even pretend like, oh, we can count all the fat calories as as calories as energy because you're going to burn all that. Again, that's that's a very sophomoric way of looking at this because that's not true at all. Really, the only macronutrient that you probably should count all the calories is carbohydrates. And then you've got the, the, the fiber arguments. You've got the, you know, then they're soluble versus insoluble. And so every single diet is a calorie restriction. You need to move more and eat less. Now, many of them are starting to not say that anymore. But when you start to look at, oh, what are the free foods versus the, the foods that count as points? What are the red foods versus the yellow versus the green? However bullshit way they want to break the foods up and say, oh, you can eat as much as you want of this, but to limit this, avoid this, it's still calorie restriction, which basically means energy restriction, which basically means that you're, you're going to stop eating before you're satiated, before you're completely full. Now, Every animal on the planet, if you feed them, and let's just call it what it is, it's food restriction, right? Because the average person walking the street doesn't understand the things and know the things that you and I know about food, that there are some foods that are nutrient dense, and there are other foods that are basically devoid of nutrients, even though they taste delicious and they have lots of calories and carbohydrates, they're really deficient in any kind of meaningful nutrition. Most people don't know that. So they, they try to limit all foods. And so they wind up being chronically hungry. And any animal that you, you take, you trap any animal in the wild, put it in a laboratory condition, and you feed it a food restriction diet. And it's either going to commit suicide or escape because that is literal torture for a mammal to say, stop eating before you're full. That is, that's, that's, that's anarchy. That's complete idiocy. To tell a mammal, stop eating before your before your body tells you to stop eating. Uh, no other animal, first of all, can do that because they don't have the, the prefrontal cortex to make that decision. 
they run on the, the hard wires in the back of the brain that's like, no, dude, you're not cool. You need to break out of this effing cage and eat the experimenter because you're not you're, you're going to die. You're not eating enough food. And so every single diet is based on that underlying premise of eat less, move more. That's always going to fail. And so some there's you know, there's millions of people running around on the planet who think of themselves as a failure because they're overweight, they're obese, they're morbidly, severely obese. And it's their fault because they could not adhere to this completely inappropriate, anti-scientific strategy that they were given. Move more, which is going to make you hungrier, but yet eat less. And so I think that's why we see so many success stories in the keto, ketovore, carnivore community is because those foods are nutrient dense. Those foods do activate the satiety hormones, of which there's a list that the average doctors forgot. They learned it in first or second year of med school, but they forgot them because then for the rest of their career, they're told, you know, move more, eat less. And here, here's some fentanyl. Here's some whatever, you know, the new diabetes medicines that help you lose weight because they basically. Have you seen that? The semi- yeah. The semi- oh, oh, yeah. They're, they're going to make so many billions of dollars off that. And it's it's complete ignorance. And, and there will be repercussions and ramifications from that. There will be disease and probably some of these drugs in the next five or 10 years will be taken off the market because it'll be revealed. Oh my God. Yeah. You did lose weight, but also you got thyroid cancer or all, you know, also you got this other devastating medical condition because you were taking this drug long-term trying to hack into a system that you didn't need to hack into. When you eat a nutrient dense diet, that's full of healthy fat and healthy protein. That's either high fat, adequate protein or high protein, adequate fat. I don't care which. Uh, seems that different people on back up to that, that Gaussian distribution curve, some people like a higher protein, adequate fat diet. And I think the fat, the fat intake has to be adequate or you're going to you're open yourself up for disease or high fat, adequate protein. You got to have adequate protein. There's no ifs, ands or buts about that. But for on somewhere on that scale is the satiety that people are looking for. It's easy to lose weight, which when we say lose weight, we mean lose unnecessary fat. That's what we want to lose. We don't want to lose bone density. We don't want to lose muscle. We don't want to weaken our our connective tissue, our fascia, our tendons, or our cartilage. We want to lose the excess stored fat. And so the way you do that is to keep the insulin level very low by eating a very low carbohydrate diet and eating adequate protein and adequate fat until you are comfortably stuffed. And when you, that's the sweet spot. And that's why keto works for so many millions of people. And that's also why it's sustainable. Because think about the sustainability of eat less, eat, stop eating before you're satiated, before you're full. That's, that's madness. That, that, that is never by definition unsustainable in a mammal. There is no mammal on the planet that will do that. And humans try to do it. And we do it for a week or a month or six months. Uh, but un- unless you get to that sweet spot of getting adequate fat and protein and keeping your insulin level low enough so that you can access your stored fat, you're going to fail. You're either not going to lose weight at all or you're going to lose weight for a few weeks or a few months. Then you're going to stall because it is unsustainable to starve a mammal long term. And that's what you're ultimately doing with calorie restriction with with stopping eating before you're full, you're starving yourself. And that is that is by definition 
unsustainable. It'd be exactly the same thing as telling someone, look, you're breathing entirely too much. Uh, all that oxygen you're breathing in, it's, it's, it's causing reactive oxygen species. You're causing, ox- you know, oxidative, you're causing inflammation. I need you to only breathe five times a minute. And any, any doctor, any physiologist is going to be, that's madness. What are you talking about? Somebody can maybe breathe five times a minute. You do that for a few, few, maybe an hour or two. But then if you, when you, when you fail, because you will, are we going to call that person a failure? Or are we going to say, are we going to, we would just back up and say, well, that's obviously ancestrally inappropriate. It, it's, it's species inappropriate. And humans are supposed to breathe 15 to 20 times a minute. If you're exerting yourself, you're going to breathe more than that. That's perfectly fine and ancestrally appropriate. But we, we never recommend uh, air restriction as a, as a form of, of anything. It's also equal, equally stupid to recommend food restriction as any kind of uh, way to attain a health goal. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I did a, a recent YouTube video on how to lose belly fat because that seems to be one of the trending things that everybody wants to know about. And the first thing I said was don't count calories, improve the quality of your food. And I, I call that calorie restricted prison, mm-hmm. you know, where you get, you get beat up in the bathroom by the bagels or something. It's just, it's just, it's a horrible place to be. You don't want to go to calorie restricted prison. It's, it's not how humans lose weight long-term. And I just wanted to add this because I just threw that in. I wanted to mention Ozempic in this podcast in Wagovia. Um, it's crazy that so many people are thinking this is a good thing these days. I looked at some video about it. I found these comments. I just wanted to screen share. Uh, my mom took Wagovia, which is this uh, semaglutide. She did lose weight. However, her most recent shot put her in the hospital with unbearable stomach, unbearable stomach cramps. Lasted the entire week. It was so painful. She stopped the shot. Uh, someone says, I'm on Ozempic for legit reasons. The side effects are brutal, at least for me. Aggravated my IBS that I had well controlled. Took over 30 days to get my IBS back under control. Um, and so it's just, it's interesting. And, and your point is well taken that why are we trying to hack hundreds of thousands of years of Homo sapien evolution in terms of our satiety mechanisms with shots like Ozempic or Regovia, which are both semaglutide at different doses. It's all the rage in Hollywood right now. And I think that the problem, and I would agree with you completely here, is that diets fail because people try and restrict calories without changing the quality of their diet. And I've heard you say carbohydrates as one of the problems for humans a couple of times. Do you think seed oils play into that or are carbohydrates yeah. the main problem? Yeah, and I don't think the research is nearly as robust showing showing the relationship between seed oils and chronic human diseases. But absolutely, since I started doing this back in 2017, this online thing trying to help people understand a proper human diet, my first three steps were stop all sugar, both added sugar and natural, naturally occurring sugar, stop all grains and stop all vegetable seed oils. That was my, that was my first three things since I first made the first video. And I still stand by that firmly. Uh, I think that the research on, let's call them vegetable seed oils, because I think the, the oil from some plant seeds are not that inflammatory. They're not that bad. But I think that the research has been so muddy because literally every single research study was funded in part or in whole by the, the company that stood to profit from the results of that research. 
And uh, we can talk about how research can be buddied for days, right? But if the canola company came up with the idea and they funded the researchers and then they didn't like the results of that study, many people don't realize they have no, no ethical duty to publish the results of that study. They can bury that study forever and you'll never know the results of that study. And so they keep tweaking, they keep data mining until they find, oh, there was a little benefit here. And, and also you didn't see that that inflammation or whatever, we'll publish that. And that's that's literally the way this research has been done for the last 50 years on all the vegetable seed oils. Uh, I think we just, we don't have good research on them, but I absolutely believe that you should avoid all vegetable seed oils. And uh, I think that some people should also avoid the fruit seed oils, uh, coconut, uh, avocado, and olive. I think for the vast majority of people under that curve, I think they're probably fine. They're not very inflammatory. Their their uh, their pupas and their monounsaturateds are probably fine. But I think there's some people over on this end of that tail who need to avoid all plant oils. And 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 you've probably talked to people. I've talked to people that even avocado oil, if it's real, which you don't know, or olive oil, which if it's real, which you don't know very often, if you're buying these things not not cl- geographically close to where they were grown. They seem to be quite inflammatory for some people over on this end of the tail. And so definitely the the canola, the soybean, the peanut oil, all the vegetable oils, the margarines, the plant butters. Now there's plant cream. Have you seen that? That's a new thing they're pushing now. Instead of heavy cream, oh, it's here's plant cream, as if that is even possible. But you should, I don't think those serve any meaningful role in the diet of Homo sapiens sapiens. Unless you're starving to death. So if you're starving, yeah, you should guzzle canola oil because it, it will keep you from starving to death. But if what your goal is, is optimizing your health, health optimization and longevity, I would avoid all the plant seed oils 100%. I did a podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago with Tucker Goodrich and Jeff Nobbs. If people are interested, we went pretty far down the seed oils rabbit hole. And I think there is actually a, a very good amount of research on seed oils. Um, the Minnesota coronary study is one of the studies that's yes. exactly like what you mentioned. Yep. The results of that study were essentially buried for 20 to 30 years, yep. maybe even Absolutely. 40 the years. Sydney, the Sydney Heart Study, the Minnesota, yeah. and then there's one other study, and these are randomized control trials right. in captive humans. And in one case, it was a double blind. I don't think all three were double blind. And I actually Minnesota talked about these on a, on a YouTube yeah. uh, video that they replaced animal saturated fat with corn oil. I think all three studies were, were they used corn oil and uniformly in these randomized controlled trials long-term for years in humans, these are not mouse studies or rat studies. And they showed without doubt that replacing animal fat with plant oils increased the risk of, of coronary heart disease of cancer uh, I think there was a decrease in longevity in the in the participants, and these all these people were in institu- institutions, so their diet was known. They were nobody was sneaking off and eating ribeye when nobody was looking. That was not happening. So when they replaced animal fats with vegetable fats, they did worse. And you're right; there were three randomized control trials in humans that were over many years in duration that show clearly. But they were all done years and years ago, decades ago. And so that gives dietitians and plant-based people that gives them, oh, that's an old, that's old science. We've got lots of new science now. 
And and that's that's what I mean. I wish we could do another Minnesota heart study or a, or a Sydney heart study and say, no, dude, the same thing that was true in the 50s and 60s is still true today. Stop eating plant oils and, and eat real animal fats. That's that's what humans are designed to do. But but that's what I mean. I think you're exactly right. And I love Tucker's work. Uh, I love Knob's work. Those guys are absolutely spot on. I just w- wish we had more robust modern research that that really nailed that point. Yeah, one of the things that that we just touched on was satiety, and I agree with you. I think satiety is at the center of how humans can be successful or fail in terms of dietary strategies. I encourage people to listen to that podcast because we we talk about some really interesting mechanisms by which seed oils, the linoleic acid in seed oils, especially, and the downstream products of linoleic acid, specifically exogenous cannabinoids like AEA and 2AG um, that can come from this linoleic acid can trigger hunger in humans. And there's a really fascinating rabbit hole involving Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, which is where it's, it's difficult to show. Maybe I could show the graphic like I did in that podcast. Basically, the stomach is cut in half and the duodenum is then you know turned into a blind loop and the end of the stomach is attached lower down in the small intestine at the ileum. And so what Tucker points out in that podcast is that by doing that, we are avoiding having that whole section of intestine that goes from the you know, basically the jejunum is probably more accurate, the middle part of the small intestine to the duodenum. So this first part of the small intestine that comes off the stomach, there are a number of endocannabinoid receptors that probably connect with the brain and influence satiety. And what's fascinating is if we bypass those with this bypass, we move the stomach down the small intestine, people become almost insulin, more insulin sensitive instantly, and they're less hungry and they eat way less just by moving it. So it's just a fascinating set of sort of mechanistic explanations that really suggest that these, these seed oils can be quite problematic for humans in terms of satiety. And most diets don't do anything to avoid seed oils, whether it's Weight Watchers or whatever diet. A vegan diet isn't going to tell you to avoid seed oils. And so you're still pumping your body full of excess amounts of linoleic acid, triggering those endocannabinoid receptors in the proximal part, the, the part of your small intestine that's closest to the stomach, and sabotaging your satiety. Let's get into carbohydrates, Ken, because this is a really important part of the conversation. And I'll just, I'll start this with the question, do you think that there's a different diet for someone that's ostensibly healthy like me and somebody that's diabetic? Because our fasting insulins are the same. Our triglycerides are the same, yours and mine. Um, I imagine your CRP is low, my CRP is low, my hemoglobin A1C was 5.0, 5.2. So we have the same, basically all of our metrics are the same. And I eat 280 to 320 grams of carbohydrates a day from fruit and raw honey, which I want to talk about. But how is it possible that somebody like me can eat that much fruit and honey? And this wasn't what I always did. I was strict carnivore and keto for a while. And I ran into problems. I ran into electrolyte issues and sleep issues and hormone issues. I added carbohydrates back in the form of what, from my perspective at least, are the least toxic plant foods. Plants probably want us to eat fruit. Honey is made by bees. And those issues for me got better. And my insulin sensitivity didn't change at all. My A1C actually went down from where it was on a strict carnivore diet. So do you think that there is an ideal diet that's for someone that's diabetic and obese that may be different than someone like me? Or do you think I'm just an outlier? Or do you think an N of one in my case isn't, isn't valid? What do you think about this? 
I just think you're nuts, Doc. No, <laughs> I don't think that. I, what I think is, and, and I actually I talk about this in the, in the book I'm currently writing called Proper Human Diet. Again, back to the normal distribution curve, right? That applies to every aspect of human physiology. It also it, it, it applies to our propensity to fatten, as our, our friend Gary Taubes would say. Some people fatten much easier than other people. And that that's not, you know, in modern society, that's considered uniformly bad. But when you look at the, the entirety of our 300,000 years as Homo sapiens sapien, for the vast majority, 99% of the time, your ability to fatten, that was a very, very good thing. And the way evolution works is it, it always, in a, in a population, there's always going to be genetic diversity because you never know what situation your tribe or your group is going to be exposed to. And so if all of a sudden there was this influx of carbohydrates, oh man, just carbs everywhere, every day, 24-7 access to carbs, then those of us who 100,000 years ago, I'm the guy that could have eaten two, two acorns and half a rat's tail, and I would have, I would have held my body fat, right? Whereas somebody like you, even at your most unhealthy, you suffer from skin and, and other things, but you were never morbidly obese. You're never severely obese. And I think that that speaks to why you're currently able to eat 200, 300 grams of, of what I agree with you. I think those are the least bad carbohydrates. If you're going to eat carbohydrates, it should be fruit and berries because they are designed to be eaten, Right. And I think for some people, berries are problematic because birds eat berries. They don't crack open the seeds, right? The seeds just pass through and actually get turbocharged and then planted in some manure. And so I think for some of us, even the seeds of strawberries, blackberries, raspberries, I think they're problematic for some of us. But, but right. the, the, the big like melons that you can get the seeds out, I think I think many of us can eat a lot of that, not experience the inflammation that we would experience from eating kale or some of the other, um, you know, touted carbs, touted, touted plant foods. And so I think there's a normal distribution curve for the ability to fatten. And so for someone like you who does not fatten that easily, you can probably eat a lot of carbs. And as long as you're very, very active and you keep a good muscle, uh, body muscle percentage, right, you're going to be able to utilize that glucose. And we'll, we'll, we'll only know what's, what's happening to you because of your, the fructose load in your diet. We'll only know what's going to come of that uh, with your end of one experiment in 5, 10, 20 years. We'll find out, won't we, whether that turned out to be healthy or not. There are many people who would opine that's probably not going to be a good thing long term to ingest that much fructose on a daily basis. But we'll see. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. And so, the majority of my audience is people who fatten very easily, right? And so uh, many of my videos, I, I talk about obesity, overweight, severe obesity, how to how to fix that. And so I think people can quickly figure out, can I eat a Paul Saladino diet, uh, which, you know, I guess the technical definition would be a paleo diet because you eat lots of meat, lots of seafood, but you also eat a lot of fruit. And you eat not really food. paleo because I don't eat any vegetables. I call it animal based, you know, Oregon. No, you are meat. eating vegetables, but you're eating. No, I, I don't eat well, vegetables. I mean, I mean, fruit comes from vegetables. No, but fruit right. isn't a vegetable. It's different, right? Vegetable is leaves yeah. and stems yeah, and it's roots. A plant, right. And so right. you, you are eating, a, you are eating a, 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 a mixed plant animal diet. Yes. 
Yeah, in which many people would call that paleo. Uh, but I, I think it's fine to call that just a, I don't know what, what that should be called, a, a fruit-based carnivore diet or a meat-based omnivore diet. And it's omnivorous. That's what it is. Animal-based. Yeah, I think that's fine. Uh, but there are many people, and they can, they will immediately know who they are by checking those those five markers we talked about earlier. And so I think it's a useful experiment for anybody who's confused. Try Saladino's. Try it for 90 days and wear a CGM and then get your get your triglycerides, your HDL, your A1C, your C-peptide and fasting insulin. Get it checked before you start and get it checked at 90 days. And you will immediately know if you're one of those people who uh, Dr. Saladino's diet is too high in carbs for you or not. If you feel better, if you're sleeping better, if you look better, uh, if you perform better, and all those numbers are are still in the sweet spot, then maybe that's the diet for you. Uh, but my opinion, it, definitely with the majority of my followers, is that would be too many carbs. I know for me personally, uh, I'm, I'm not going to try your diet because I know definitely that if I started to eat 200 grams of, of carbs a day, uh, fiber-free carbs, right? Just, just carbs, just sucrose, fructose, and glucose. Not necessarily. So, I would, like, I would, I would gain twenty pounds in ninety days of doing that. I know that because I've I tried, I tried every so, iteration. I've tried every iteration. Now, if, if you'll write me a check with enough zeros on it, Paul, I will do your diet for ninety days. But, but I, that's the only way because, dude, I, I know I would, I would have Dunlap. You know what that is, right? Within 90 days, my belly would done be lapping over my belt again, just like it did in the old days. And and I, I know that my my fasting insulin and my A1C would move in the net wrong direction if I ate that many carbs a day. So I do think on a normal distribution curve, and I talk about in, in the book, somewhere between 100 total grams of carbs a day and zero total, total grams of carbs a day, That in my that's my current definition of the carbohydrate spectrum for a proper human diet. And so I think for many of us who are young, who are very active, who just tend to be leaner because of our DNA, we don't we don't fatten as easily. I think you can get away with eating 100 grams of carbs a day as long as they're not inflammatory. Right. And as long as they're as nutrient dense as you can get, you're you'll probably do fine, at, at least while you're young and very active. But I think the vast majority of people who are who come to a way of eating, trying, they're trying to lose weight. They're trying to reverse type two diabetes or pre-diabetes. They're trying to reverse metabolic syndrome. I think for very many of those people, it's just going to be too many carbohydrates, although it's delicious. And, and, and I think, I think for many of us, we'd love to be able to, to eat fruit and honey daily. It's just too, it's too fattening for our DNA personally. Interesting. So uh, I need to uh, add some caveats. So I'm five, nine, um, and I'm 165 pounds. I'm about 10% body fat. I surf for two to three hours a day. And so I don't think everyone should eat 280, 300 grams of carbs a day. Right. But my suspicion is that most humans can eat fruit without it being a problem for them. And um, I think that some fruit and honey are the least toxic sources of carbohydrates. And they will often help people who are struggling with electrolyte issues and sleep issues when they go too low carb. Now, on my website, which is carnivoremd.com, we put a little animal-based calculator. And in the calculator is your height, your weight, and your activity level. 
and it'll give you some macros to kind of base it off of. And that carbohydrate macro is pretty wide. I think that if people are less active than I am, uh, I mean, I don't think many people are um, surfing in, in the water for three hours a day. So I think I'm at the high end of carbohydrates, but I use that as an, as an anecdote to say, hey, I'm eating 300 grams of carbohydrates and I'm not, I'm not gaining weight. Um, I have no visceral fat and my insulin is really low. My fasting insulin is really low. So uh, there's at least something going on where there are some people who can eat that much and be fine, um, whether that's an outlier or whether that's just most humans or whether that has to do with how much linoleic acid is in your fatty tissues or how metabolically healthy you are at baseline. I don't think we fully understand that yet. I agree. And, oh, I totally agree with that. I think, and I think that's very important is to, to say is that, that both I and you and everybody else who talks about human health and human physiology and human nutrition, we're all fumbling around in the dark because all of the research done in the last 50 years has been just incredibly muddied by outside influence. Uh, we've, we've got the, in, we've got religion. So many people have a religious belief that, that dictates eat this, don't eat that. And we've got all these things, uh, human, di the diet that you eat is so, it's so weird because it's just physiology, right? It's just biochemistry. That's all it is. But it, there, it's, it's almost like talking about politics or religion because we all quickly get emotional, or at least most of us get very emotional very quickly if you start to denigrate the diet that was, that was taught to us by our mother or our grandmother or our aunt or whoever. We get immediately emotional about that. And it, it's, it's fascinating, but it's also frustrating, right? Because it's like, no, this is literally, this is just science here we're talking about. This is not a religious discussion. This is not a discussion that your mom was wrong or right. But so many people don't understand that this is, it's, it, even though we think, you and I think we've rediscovered a proper human diet, or at least very close to it, we're all fumbling around in the dark. From the, the Harvard School of Public Health, the, the current chair is fumbling around in the dark. Well, Paul yeah. Saladino, Ken Berry, we're all fumbling around in the dark trying to rediscover what is a proper human diet outside of all the modern, uh, you know, oh, we want to be modern everything. We want to have factory made food. I don't think that's right. But many people believe if it's modern, it's better. And you can't convince them of that. But I think it's important to, for all of us to admit, yeah. We're doing the best we can, but we do not know it all. And I, 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 the more I study this, the more I think that if we're three layers deep in the physiology and the, in the biochemistry of, of both medicine and nutrition, I think there's somewhere between probably seven and 10 layers. And I don't think that any one human will ever understand it all. I think it'll take machine learning and artificial intelligence to ever ultimately comprehend the, the complex the complexity of the human organism down to the down to the, the molecular biology level and beyond. I, I, I don't think one human will ever understand it. And it's frustrating. But at the same time, it, it you know, it, it really makes you just stand back in awe that, you know, the, the, the dumbest, poorest. Whoever, wherever in the world can literally just bumble around and eat whatever the hell they want to eat and do whatever they want to do and still live a pretty decent life. It's just, it's maddening to know that there probably are some principles that we should all adhere to, 
but yet many of us don't and, and seemingly don't have to. And it, it's maddening, but at the same time, it, it, it just leaves me in awe of the human species, the human organism. And, and any primate species, any mammalian species, it's just, it's just maddeningly awe-inspiring how, how robust and how complex plex it is. But yet at the same time, here are these dummies over here trying to dig down into it and understand it. I think that there's a lot of people that still suffer um, and a lot of people that leave a lot of longevity, optimal health, and vitality on the table. There are humans all over the world that are able to live and, and work. But I mean, I live in Central America most of the time these days. And uh, I see it here. There's a lot of people that don't think about dietary stuff. And so, I mean, there's a, mostly people are obese. And by mm -hmm. the time they get to be 30, they're definitely obese. And they certainly, at least based on my visual approximation, have visceral fat and, you know, progression of atherosclerosis that goes with it. And so it, I think there's a lot of people that would benefit by being more intentional with their diet. Most people can get to reproductive age and pass on their DNA eating. Um, crap in a bag, but I think very few people are are really living as well as they as they could. But I, I like I like kind of this position that we've come to, where someone might say like, "Oh, I, I'm going to try keto," and I think most people should try a, a very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet at some point in their life, um, especially if they're obese and diabetic. But I also think that. Um, and, and we may disagree on this. I don't believe that carbohydrates cause diabetes. And I've spoken about that on previous podcasts. I want to be very clear about that, that uh, I don't think carbohydrates create a diabetic state in humans. Now, there's some nuance there. I want to talk about honey before we wrap the podcast up and, and fruit specifically. I'm not sure humans should really just eat all carbohydrates without regard. I don't, it looks like processed grains don't do well for humans. And High fructose corn syrup doesn't appear to be good for humans, but there's some interesting research that, that seems to draw distinctions between processed carbohydrates and non-processed carbohydrates, things like fruit or honey. And I didn't really believe it when I first saw it, but it's, it's pretty interesting. So I just want to be clear that from my perspective, I don't think carbohydrates cause diabetes. They can add fuel to the fire when it's burning because there is some degree of insulin resistance. From my perspective, the best I can bumble around in the dark at this point is that but the major driver of insulin resistance at the level of muscles and liver, uh, probably at the brain, has to do with seed oils and changes to membranes uh, and mitochondria with linoleic acid percentages and cardiolipin and the mitochondrial membranes and potentially even, you know, respiratory, you know, respiratory electron transport chain, uh, insulin resistance stuff that is the realm of, of Peter from hyperlipid that we won't go into in this podcast that gets pretty darn, pretty darn, pretty darn granular. But it's clear to me that insulin resistance is, is dysfunction of the adipose tissue, dysfunction of the fatty, the fat tissue in the human body, where the fat tissue becomes sort of like hypertrophic instead of hyperplastic. So the fat cells can't divide anymore. They just get really, really big and they leak out inflammatory mediators, lipokines, and then they actually leak out non-esterified fatty acids signaling to the periphery to become insulin resistant inappropriately. But that's, that's a topic for a separate podcast. But I do think that Rick Johnson's done some interesting studies. Have you seen Rick Johnson's study? Yep. Yep. Where they they restricted processed fructose in people. And they had one group that restricted processed fructose. And the other group they restricted processed fructose, but they gave them fruit. And the 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 fruit group, and I'll pull up the study here, the 
this, this group that they restricted processed fructose in and they gave them fruit in moderate amounts. I mean, they had four to 500 calories of fruit per day, which is probably a hundred grams, you know, of, of carbohydrates from fruit. Plus, um, they did really well. They actually did better in some metrics than, than the, than the low, purely low fructose, no fruit group. I thought that was pretty interesting. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that one. I'll pull up the study here while you're. Yeah, I, I definitely, I agree with you that, that the, the carbohydrates from fruit are less bad. And, and so many people talking about things as less bad or less good is as much it helps them understand things. So if you say, oh yeah, definitely processed carbs, you know, high fructose corn syrup, that's definitely bad. Fruit's okay. I think for, and that's probably true for some people to some degree, but I really think that it helps people understand when you say, you know, processed grains and sugar, uh, the, the, the breakfast cereals, the, you know, just drinking fruit juice, that's bad, but eating lots of fruit is less bad. And I totally agree with that. And I think if you, if you did a study in humans where one group ate lots of processed carbs, lots of processed fructose, and the other group ate fresh raw fruit, yeah, I think that's less bad. 100% agree with that. But being less bad doesn't make it good. Doesn't make it optimal for the majority of people. And that that's kind of where my stance is currently. I don't I don't think fruit's bad. Uh, I just think it's 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 less bad. But I don't think it's necessarily. <clears throat> obviously, there's no uh, micronutrient that you can get from fruit that you can't get from meat. I think you still agree with that. I think you can get every single amino acid, fatty acid, vitamin and mineral that you need from animal products. I don't, I don't think anybody hopefully could argue that. As long uh, as you get organs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I'd also, I want to talk in a, in a minute about uh, the muscle meat carnivores that you and I both know that have been eating nothing but muscle meat for decades sure. and are still evidently optimally healthy. Right, but but first, so now even if you want to include polyphenols in that, uh, I know you know this, but many people don't know that if you're eating properly fed animal flesh, it's a good source of polyphenols as well, right? Grass-finished beef is a great source of polyphenols. Uh, that, that really pisses off a lot of the plant-based people on Twitter when you start talking about that. They're like, that, no, that is impossible by definition, polyphenols only occur in plants. I'm like, I'm sorry to tell you, but the research has very clearly shown that's not true. So then you're left with, okay, you got fruit. It's delicious. There's no doubt, especially modern fruit, which you and I both know is significantly different from fruit from either even 100 years ago, 200 years ago, um, 300 years ago. There was no such thing as the big, luxurious banana and the humongous papaya and the humongous pineapple, those things have been crossbred through, you know, decades to make them basically huge sacks of sugar <clears throat> that taste amazing. They look great. They travel well. Uh, but that's not the fruit that our ancestors had access to uh, even 500 years ago. Definitely not 5,000 or 50,000 years ago. Our ancestors never had access to that high carbohydrate fruit that we now have easy access to in the supermarket. And so I think that's two things that people don't understand about Paul Saladino is number one, that if you've never tried to surf, 
it, it looks effortless, especially when you're good at it like Paul is. It looks just it's not beautiful, it's graceful. Dude, coming from a, a, a white boy, a redneck that has tried to surf, that is one of the most high-intensity exercises that you can do on the planet. And this guy does two hours a day. He loves it. I can tell when he just says the word, you can just see the twinkle. He freaking loves it. And he's very good at it. But it is one of the highest intensity exercises. And to sustain that for two hours, that's ridiculous. I, I wish I could do that, but I cannot do that. I'm, I suck at surfing. But so also the fruit that Paul eats is not fruit that any of our ancestors would have ever had access to. They would never have had these huge sacks of carbohydrates to eat. They would have loved to have had them. And if they had had access to them, they would have wore that shit out. They would have eaten all of it. No doubt. But they didn't have access to it. What they had access to was much lower carbohydrate, much higher fiber, pithy, seedy, not very tasty. So in my, from what I gleaned from, from anthropology and paleoanthropology is, yes, we did eat that, no doubt. But we ate it more as a starvation food. We would have never eaten that as an optimization food back in our in our natural environment, which for 99% of our time on this planet as a species, we never had access to that kind of fruit. And if you want to go back to, to Homo habilis and even further, we're talking about millions of years where we were weapon-wielding, meat-eating carnivores for the for the vast majority of our diet, when you start to really dig into the stable isotope analysis research, it's clear that we ate tons of fatty red meat and tons of seafood if we had access to it. That's what we lived on. We didn't have access to, to the fruit that, that Dr. Saladino and I and you have access to. It just didn't exist, which is fine. And, and I do agree with Dr. Saladino that fruit is the least bad. Of, of the plant foods that you can ingest. I think it's the least inflammatory. I think that it, it the plants absolutely intend for you to eat ripe fruit, right? And so it actually, the plant actually draws the, the anti-nutrients or breaks them down. There's various mechanisms that, that happens in, in the fruit, but it makes it less inflammatory. And it makes, it, it makes the nutrition that is in the plant more accessible. I totally agree with all that. I think that's true. And so if you're going to eat carbs, they should probably be in the form of fruit. And, I, the, you know, when I first started this years ago, Paul, I would have said, no, you need to eat the, you know, the the, the kale and the spinach and the, the, the you know, that's that's keto. But now I, I think probably many people would do better to spend their, their carbohydrate wallet each day. If you're if you're counting carbs, probably fruit. It would be the be the especially if you suffer from any kind of autoimmunity, any kind of gut condition, any kind of skin condition. You're probably going to notice that those those the kale and the spinach and all that stuff that I used to recommend. That's probably going to be more inflammatory to your gut condition, your joint condition, your skin condition, even your maybe perhaps your mental condition than fruit. I think fruit is less bad on a whole because the plants want you to eat it and they withdraw their chemical defenses when the fruit is ripe. They're absolutely true. And I absolutely agree with that. And I'm, I'm slowly migrating towards probably if you're going to eat carbs, you probably should spend your carbs on the part of the plant that the plant actually wants you to ingest. And you should probably completely avoid the part of the plant 
that the plant definitely does not want you to destroy. I think I think you're onto something there. And the more I look at this, the more I think you're probably right about that. Now, honey is a is a whole different thing. We can definitely we'll get, get there. Into anything. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah. Okay. So um interesting because I've heard this this argument about the fruit that we eat today is different than the fruit that we've eaten traditionally as humans. And one of the interesting things about living near the equator, I live at the eighth north parallel. So I live really close to the equator. You're, you're down there in the blue zone. I know what you're doing. You're trying to live to be 120. You moved to Dan Butner's blue zone. I know what you did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you got to do to, to prove all your haters wrong, right? Uh, not that you're a hater, but the haters in the plant-based community. Um, the uh, There's a lot of tropical fruit here that never has been sort of mainstream hybridized, right? If we go to the farmer's market here, I get fruit that I've never seen before. Yeah. Um, I get papaya that's out of the tree in my yard that's never been crossbred or hybridized. It's just growing wild. There's fruit called mamoncinos, which are like rambutans, very sweet. And when those trees come into bloom and they bloom for maybe two to three months a year, maybe three to plus months, there's thousands of those fruit on the tree. Um, these are never crossbred. They're never hybridized. There's jackfruit, which are huge and very sweet. There's durian sometimes, which are seasonal. There's mangoes. And when the mango trees come into bloom for a few, maybe like one or two months a year, uh, there's different seasons for all the different fruit. There's, there's thousands of mangoes everywhere. And then different mangoes come in other times of the year as well. And it all kind of is different. Then there's mames. People who have never had a mames sapote, it's like a different, it's a really, really sweet, very, very enjoyable fruit. It's a black pudding mame. My point is just that being here, I think the, the narrative that the fruit we're eating has been hybridized and made oversweet doesn't really hold up to examination, at least in a tropical region, which is where humans likely began and spent the majority of our time. I think that, you know, there was, a, there was an, a, an exodus from Africa maybe 600,000 years ago when Neanderthals split off of Homo, Homo habilis, but Homo sapiens apparently didn't leave Africa until 40 to 50,000 years ago when they went north to Europe and encountered Neanderthals. So I think that for the majority of our evolution, you can make an argument that humans would have had access to different types of fruit throughout the year that were, that were actually pretty darn sweet. Now, what you find in a grocery store in North America, yeah, apples. A wild apple doesn't look quite like an apple that you find um, in, in the grocery store and bananas are probably bigger, but, but like natural plantains, I mean, those things are huge. Uh, plantains are massive. Um, there, there definitely are some very sweet, very large fruits. And what struck, strikes me as interesting is being at the farmer's market here at the equator, there's always fruit every time of the year, there's always fruit here. And these are farmers who are growing it like in their yards, fincas, we call them here. They're not, they're not big agribusiness companies that are right. growing them in greenhouses or hydroponic. There's always fruit and there's different fruit in season at different times of the year. So I, I, I have a little bit of trouble with that argument because I think that at least when we were at the equator or throughout our tropical evolution, we probably would have had access to sweet fruit all year round. Um, and if, I, if I could, Paul, let me let me address yeah, yeah. Two, two things, because I, I think that your your reasoning is quite sound on this. Uh, but I, two things. First of all, you point out that even in equatorial regions, the fruit is still seasonal. 
and different right. fruits might be ripe at different times of the year, but right. there's still a season where you can get mangoes. And then there's two thirds or three quarters of the year where you're not going to get any mangoes. Right. And but something that, else is available. That's it. Perhaps. And so that's true everywhere in the world, even at the equatorial regions where many people who live at northern latitudes, they think, oh, at the equator, there's just always the stuff. It's still seasonal, even at the equator. And when I'm when I say hybridized and crossed, I, I many people think I'm talking about, oh, the United Fruit Company. They came down there and took these tiny, pithy, seedy bananas and they crossbred them and they made this commercial product. And that's definitely true. But. I'm talking about it, there's quite a bit of literature in, in the anthropo- anthropological literature of humans selectively breeding the all these plants that you mentioned, the mango, the papaya, the breadfruit, all that stuff absolutely has been hybridized and crossbred for, by humans for thousands of years. There's ample evidence that the American Indian did this with, with maize, Right. And, and they were selecting even then because humans are very smart, we're very crafty. And so I would opine that even a thousand years, 5,000 years, and that's why in, in my, in, I talk about the younger dries cutoff kind of 12 to 15,000 years ago. We really want to look at what did humans eat then? Because we really got crafty after the younger dries 12 to 15,000 years ago. We got very crafty at making plants feed us. And some anthropologists would would opine that we didn't domesticate these plants. They actually domesticated us. That's a very compelling argument in anthropological literature uh, that these plants are basically using us to propagate them, which, you know, it makes sense. It's a a mutual use, right? It's it's what we're cooperating with them. But absolutely, those those plants that that you have access to, they've been crossbred by humans for hundreds, if not thousands of years, not by the United Fruit Company. But by the natives who live there and they are like this papaya tree, it has big fat papayas and this one has minuscule. These are not as sweet. I'm going to cut that one down and I'm going to graft this one and I'm going to crawl. We've been doing that for thousands of years, Paul. And the, anthropology, the literature tr- makes it very clear that that's yeah. something the humans have been doing for at least 12,000 years, if not longer. I have and trouble I, don't, believing I agree with that. you. I don't think it's the big corporations doing it. No, but I have trouble believing that. Do that. I, I do that here on OB Farms. We've got a pear tree that Nisha's grandfather planted. And I'm going to buy some Bradford pear stock, uh, root stock. And I'm going to grab, it's the, they're the biggest fucking pears I've ever, the sweetest pears. I've never had a pear taste as good as that pear. And it's just luck of the draw. And you can't plant the seeds because that won't work. But our ancestors knew that. They knew that you couldn't just plant the seeds because seeds of apples and and pears and many other fruit, fruits don't grow true. You have to graft. And, and there's literature that we've been grafting for thousands of years to select for the bigger, fatter, sweeter fruit. And I'm going to I'm going to graft some on because once a year, you know, for a month out of each year, me and Nisha and Beckett and I'm sure Bonnie Blue as well. We'll we're going to eat those pears once a year when they're in season because they're freaking delicious. But, yeah, humans have been we've been crossbreeding and selectively breeding uh, the, the fruits for thousands of years. I, I, um, I have trouble believing that that's like ubiquitous, you know, I'll go in the jungle, Ken, I go hiking to waterfalls. There's a mango tree, man. Yeah. Like, I just so when you go into the jungle everything. now, when you go into the jungle now, that feels like you're going somewhere, but our ancestors, that, that was, they, you know what they call the jungle home. That's where they lived every day of their entire life. 
for hundreds and hundreds of generations. We, I mean, there, I don't think there's a plant on the planet unless it grows in Antarctica that human beings have not molded and shaped that plant for the last few thousand years. That's just human nature. That's just what we do. But now I, 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 I'm happy to be proven wrong. If you can find a, a, a mango or a papaya or breadfruit that shows no evidence of having been selectively bred, then I, I will stand correct. But I'm afraid you'll have trouble finding that. By that, by that line of reasoning, do, do you think that our ancestors were then just getting fat and sick? I mean, no, no, I don't. Because are- I think I, I agree with you. I think because they were all doing the equivalent of two hours of surfing every day, and there were long periods of time where they were starving, not by choice. They weren't fasting; they were starving because. After the younger dryas, the huge megafauna that we that we all had access to, there were humongous animals all across North and South America and Central America. They disappeared, and for whatever reason, there's a lot of disagreement of what caused that extinction. Some people think humans we hunted them to extinction, and I think in many cases that's true, and I think that's that's demonstrably true. But in many cases, we just don't know where the megafauna went. They just disappeared. And I'm talking about elephants. I'm talking about horses. I'm talking about camels in North and South America. I'm talking about armadillos the size of Volkswagens. I'm talking about these huge, fatty mastodons and bison that were everywhere uh, on every continent before that, whatever happened in that younger, driest bottleneck. Now we no longer have access to that. Now we got to start piddling around with grains and messing around with the fruit, trying to become farmers. Not by choice. It was not some kind of a breakthrough. Ah, oh, we're now intelligent. We can we can fuck with the plants. We had to do that. We had to learn how to do that, or we would have, we would have ceased to exist as a as a species because the food that we had hunted for millions of years was now gone. And so it kind of forced us to become horticulturists and farmers. And we got very good at it. We're still very very good at it. Um, my dad is an excellent grafter of fruit and nut trees. He's, he's so good at it. I suck at it currently, but I'm going to try to learn this fall how to do that so that I can propagate that, that big, fat, delicious pear. And, and in doing that, I am literally walking in the footsteps of my ancestors for the last 12,000 years. When I, when I graft that big, shoot, uh, sweet, juicy pear onto the Bradford pear rootstock that nobody wants to eat a Bradford pear. They're, they're stupid. But that pear, oh yeah, I want I want to keep that pear on this farm forever because it's so delicious. It's such a treat to eat that when it's in season. So if that's the case, why don't we see currently living groups of hunter-gatherers doing this? Because the Hadza don't do this. They don't do any sort of grafting or agriculture. Sure. The, Ikung, that's right. the Ikung don't do this. The Yanomono sure. in the Amazon I mean, you know, um, I've been to visit the Hadza. I haven't been to Botswana yet to visit the Akung. My friend, you know, Brian, uh, otherwise known as Liver King, went to multiple tribes in, in the Amazon. They don't do this, Ken. No. Um, so there's, and, and currently, they don't. You're, you're absolutely they don't. correct. They don't do and, this. They, but well, let, there's let a just big problem. Please. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm finish? sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like, I mean, I think that there was a, a change in the way that humans did things. And, and some humans did become pastoralists. Um, ten to fifteen thousand years ago, but there's good research from the Ohio Spoon River Valley, and I think you and I would agree on this that that the change from hunter gatherers to horticulturists and pastoralists 
resulted in significant declines in human health. And yep. I'm not familiar with any groups of, of hunter-gatherers, and unfortunately, most of them are, are gone from the planet, but either historically, um, through the use, through the, you know, through the work of Weston Price, maybe 100 years ago, or, or currently living groups like the Ikung, who Frank Marlowe has studied, the, uh, excuse me, uh, the Hadza, who Frank Marlowe has studied, the Ikung from Richard Lee, you know, they, they don't do that. They don't really graft plants and, and do this. So um, maybe you could share with me offline or something, some research that, that, that sure. supports the idea that, that humans were doing this because. Um, yeah. Think- grafting is a very modern technique. And I, I don't know of any research showing that grafting took place more than a few hundred years ago, but definitely the, the selection and the, the crossbreeding that that's been going on for thousands of years. And I think that I don't know if anybody uh, in the anthropological circles that would argue that. Um, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from the Hadza and from the Inuit and from the Akung, but we have to remember they are not living in their ancestral environment. First of all, they are, they are trapped uh, chronologically because they don't have access to the megafauna that we used to literally chase all over the world. That megafauna is gone and it's been gone for 12,000 ish years. So in that respect, they're not like their ancestors. They're not like the, the proper human life and diet that we're trying to rediscover together, you and I. But in that respect, they don't have that resource anymore. And so they have to, uh, they have to hunt and they have to farm or ranch less fatty animals, smaller animals. That's what they're stuck with. They have no choice. The Hatsa and all these, all of these, these ethnographic tribes that we still have access to that somewhat live an ancestral life, they're trapped geographically. They're basically inhabit land that nobody else wants. They've been either pushed there or they haven't been taken over. Nobody's conquered them. Because nobody wants the scrubland that they live on. Uh, the you know the Inuit have never really been attacked because who the hell wants to conquer Siberia and the and the Alaska? It's literally it sucks. It's cold all the time. So they're trapped geographically. They're trapped chronologically, and very often they're trapped politically because there there are huge cultures around them that are more agrarian cultures that that you and I both know that when you're an agrarian culture can become much more warlike. Because you've got much more, you can store your food. You don't have to chase your food. And so you can build fortifications and you can not only be build defensive things, you can also build offensive things. And the only reason that the Hatsa and the Inuit and people like that still exist in some degree of the, the way that we used to live is because nobody wants their land because it's scrub. And so I think we can learn some things from them, but I definitely don't think we should mimic them. I think if they had their choice, if, 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 if the world could go back to the way it was when we did most of our evolving, they would not do anything that they do currently. They would stop doing all that immediately because it, it, it's, a, it's a subsistence lifestyle and diet, and it's a starvation lifestyle and diet. They're, that's not the diet that they would choose. It's what they're stuck with currently geographically and chronologically and politically because they can't do any better. Um, and like with the Hatsa and the honey thing. I, yeah, absolutely. I think my ancestors 150,000 years ago, and you, I'm sure you agree with this, if they found a honey tree, oh, they, they wore that shit out. 100%. No doubt. They ate all the honey, endured the stings to get the honey, 
But honey trees, if anybody's ever tried to husband bees, it's they're very finicky, very quirky. Your hive will literally disappear on you overnight. You have no idea what happened, where it went. It's just gone. And that happens in the wild as well. It, it was a rare occurrence to find a honey tree. And uh, now the, it seems the hots have access to, to honey trees 24-7, 365. But the way I, I read the literature, that was a rare occurrence to find a honey tree. So when I was in Tanzania, I spent a couple of weeks with them and I hunted with them on, on a number of occasions. And um, it was nothing to find honey. It was easy. Right, right. Um, on, on, and this isn't because they're, 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 they're tending the bees. This is because there are multiple types of bees in Tanzania. There are uh, bees that sting and there are bees that are stingless, the Mariola and other types of bees that are stingless. And so one day we were out hunting, we hiked and sprinted and walked for 10, 10 hours and, and we hunted a baboon. And after we, we successfully hunted a baboon, they, they found a hive in a tree and they immediately made a fire and smoked out those bees. And as you said, we, we wore it out. That, that entire hive was eaten. And there's pictures on my Instagram from a while ago, or I can put some in the podcast. It's delicious. I mean, it's honeycomb with larva. And, and the three or four hods of guys that I was with who discovered the hive were the ones that ate the most of the honeycomb with me, and they saved a little bit for the other guys. And then another day, I said, hey, let's, let's go find some of this other honey. And, and it, was, it was really nothing for them, Ken. Um, there are these stingless bees, and they make these little tiny flutes, these little straws that go into trees. And so it was me and three other Hadza guys, and we just went out on a walkabout. And within literally within 25 minutes, we'd found honey two to three times in these trees and, and they, yep. they take their ax and there's video of this on my Instagram from a while ago. I'm sure we can put it in the podcast and I've, I've chopped, you know, and they, it's just this little flute that goes into the tree. And then some of these are really big and, and they have quite a bit of honey in them. Sure. And, and then, and we're all sharing it around and it's just a celebration. It's the best honey yep. I've ever had. And then the, the, the guy who's probably 60 years old or more um, said, well, let's go up in the baobab tree. This was in a baobab tree, which they call the tree of life. It has a baobab fruit, um, which is kind of uh, like dry. It's like a dry type of cotton candy fruit, very citrusy, uh, a lot of vitamin C in the baobab fruit. He just, he literally makes these pegs within probably five minutes, hammers them into a tree and he's 30 feet up in a tree with nothing more than his ax that he used to make these things. And he's around there looking for more hives and he finds another one. So I think that, and then the other thing I should point out, because I've seen this comment sometimes, is that in, in tropical areas, bees make honey year round. It's kind of like fruit. Um, there's, not, there's not a winter <laughs> where, where humans evolved for most of our time, and, and bees are always making honey. It's different in North America, and there is, a, there is a question of whether, and this is a whole separate discussion, whether humans should eat based on latitude. Uh, you know, is it, is it different for me because I'm living at the equator? It's, it's an interesting hypothesis. Some would argue that I'm getting lots of sunlight here or my circadian rhythms are different and that, that, you know, I'm at the equator, so maybe I can eat differently. And then people who are farther from the equator, perhaps they should eat less carbohydrates or less honey on a seasonal basis. I haven't found that to be true for myself when I've lived in Oxon, Texas and other places, but that's another argument. But, but honey is available year round within probably, I would say, 15 to 20 degrees of the equator in North and South. And 
the, the anthropology that I've read suggests that where honey is available, our ancestors ate it. So yeah. this is sort of the continuation of the discussion around fruit. Um, the, but I think, I think it was you said something very important, Paul. Can I just finish? Can I just oh, finish? yeah, but uh, I just yeah. wanted, let me add this, because this is not, an, this is just to add, uh, you said yeah. that they definitely ate the comb and the larva, which I think our ancestors always did that. I, I, yeah. I, just to, to drain off the honey, I, I think that never happened. I think they munched on the entirety of it, uh, and that changes the macro composition of it substantially changes the nutritional value of it substantially and i think i think definitely all of our ancestors always ate the comb and the larva i don't think they just drained off the honey but i think that's that is very uh, important that you said that because that, that that's exactly right and then that drastically changes the macro ratios doesn't it uh, a little bit. I mean, so it depends on the, the comb that you're getting, like the, the Mariola bees, the stingless bees, there isn't a lot of comb there. And the other ones, definitely we were eating the larva. So that's going to change the, the, the macronutrient composition. I don't know what bug macronutrients are, but I suspect there's a little more protein and fat. I'll have to look it up. I didn't, I don't have any papers on, uh, on bee larva macronutrients, but they kind of no, taste nutty. Yeah. But, um, it's just, I think it's important to understand that that there is this swath where we were always eating honey. Um, we know the hods are very healthy uh, from a nutritional standpoint, from a longevity standpoint, from a chronic disease standpoint, and a diabetes standpoint. They basically don't have obesity. They don't have diabetes. Um, but some people do believe that they only ate the honey certain times of the year, but that doesn't seem to be what I saw. And, and the honey is quite available for them. And it's not always in a hive. The Mariola bees don't even have the honey in a hive. It's not the same sort of structure in those, in those stingless bees. So as I was saying, this is just a continuation of the fruit discussion, which I think is really interesting. Um, but the, the, the whole discussion of fruit being hybridized or bigger is kind of predicated on like more is worse. Well, I mean, I saw the Hadza eat, you know, hundreds of calories, hundreds of grams of honey, and I ate it with them, you know, on multiple occasions. Um, so I think that you can extend it all the way and say, well, honey's never been different. Uh, honey is just honey, and it's always been the sweetest thing. Yep, yep. If you look at the research from Frank Marlowe, the paper is called Tubers as a Fallback Food for the Hadza. Both the men and the women consistently say that honey is their favorite food. I mean, it, that's not surprising, but it, it's, when it is consumed or when it's available, it's, it's consumed without regard to calories or, or insulin resistance or anything. They're just like, this is amazing. There's also some pretty interesting, at least things I've read. I haven't visited these groups. I think it's the Mbuti pygmy, pygmies, the M-B-U-T-I pygmies, that at certain times of the year, they, they have a lot of their calories from honey and remain quite insulin sensitive. I think it's over 60 to 70% of their calories come from honey. So there is some um, historical precedent for this in terms yep. of honey. Um, I know you have mentioned this paper. Maybe we can talk about it just for a moment before we wrap up. This one about... Yep. Uh, um, While you're pulling that up, let me just say that I, I do think there's an argument to be made for eating seasonally and or geographically. But I think that in order for that argument to be sound, it needs to be seasonally and geographically. Also, you have to consider your own DNA. And my yeah. skin pigment and your skin pigment belies the fact that our ancestors have been in the northern latitudes for many, many, many generations, and some of us many more generations than others. 
And so at that point, not just because somebody who is, you know, of Nordic descent, they moved to the equator. I don't think that geographical eating is probably going to work for that person. The same way it would work for the Hots or, or another group of people who had been at that latitude for hundreds and hundreds of generations. So I brought up this honey versus sucrose study. Um, Ken and I didn't have a chance to talk about it at this point in the podcast, but we talked about this one and another one after we stopped recording. So I wanted to add some commentary about our discussion uh, into this part of the podcast because I think it'll be most relevant for what we're talking about here. So the study that I'm thinking of to start is this one. It's one that um, Ken has talked about in the past. The consumption of honey, sucrose, and high fructose corn syrup produces similar metabolic effects in glucose-tolerant and intolerant individuals. So um, Ken and I talked about this one after the podcast, but what's interesting about the groups in this study were that if you look at number one, they used Dutch gold honey, which is not raw. I looked up Dutch gold honey. It's not a raw honey, unfortunately. So as Ken and I talked about this podcast, I don't think all honey is created equally. Um, in the study that I mentioned regarding nitric oxide, derivatives from honey. We know that if honey is heated, if honey is light-colored honey, if honey is exposed to air, it's not going to be as beneficial for humans as a raw honey. So they used a honey that was pasteurized, essentially heated, which probably removes some of the beneficial things in honey, might remove the nitric oxide precursors, which has been found in previous studies. So that's the first thing to know about this study, which seemed to equate honey with sugar and hybridized corn syrup. Secondly, if you look at the individuals in this study, they were glucose tolerant, they said, but the average serum insulin was 8.6 and 15.7 in the impaired glucose tolerance group. So the impaired glucose tolerance group definitely has a higher uh, fasting insulin, but as we talked about in this podcast, the average fasting insulin for Americans is 8.6. We know that most, 90% of Americans have at least one metric suggesting metabolic dysfunction, so I don't think 8.6 is where you want your insulin uh, when you're fasting. So I would say neither of these populations are glucose sensitive at all. It would be very hard to find a population that had a fasting insulin of less than five. So I get it, but both of these populations are insulin resistant in my opinion. And if you look at the results here um, in terms of pre and post, you'll see that most of these p-values are not very significant. So the only significant p-values that I could find are this one right here, the serum triglycerides for this specific phase did go up in these people, all of which had some degree of insulin resistance. So you can see this column right here is looking at honey. The pre-triglycerides were 114 plus or minus 17. That's not a healthy level of triglycerides, guys. And the posts were 120 plus or minus 18. That's what the whole deal has been made of this thing. So like that's what Ken is saying in his videos, that honey is bad for people. I don't understand. So I definitely challenged him with this after the uh, after our podcast, and he agreed that this maybe is not the best study regarding honey, but he and I will probably do a whole separate podcast with these two studies. But this is one of the studies that Ken had advanced, and I love that he and I could have such a friendly, cool, cordial debate in this podcast. But this is one of the studies that Ken had advanced saying that honey was not good or that honey was the same as sugar. And I just wanted to share why uh, that's probably not the case when you actually drill down into the study. Second study is another one that Ken has shared in the past looking at fruit consumption and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So what's important to know about this one is that though the title 
And the um, conclusions say that fruit of four servings a day versus two servings a day works in steatosis, dyslipidemia, and glycemic control in NAFLD patients. When I actually look at this, and I showed Ken this after the podcast, and he agreed, um, the, uh, the category of fruits was based on colored fruits, dried fruits, and other fruits. Well, first of all, we know that a lot of dried fruits have added sugar. Secondly, other fruits. What is other fruits? Does that include canned peaches? Does that include uh, maraschino cherries with added sugars? So this is the problem with most nutritional research is that this study compared people with four or more servings of fruit per day and two or less servings of fruit per day. And the fruit that they were using is not real fruit. This is the problem with nutritional studies today is that researchers don't really understand how to design a study. Uh, what is a dried fruit doing in this with potentially added sugar? And what are other fruits? We just don't know which to me makes the results of this study very suspect. And there are other studies that show that in patients with NAFLD, um, you can eliminate processed fructose and include fruit fructose and the NAFLD gets better. So those are both really important studies that I wanted to add. At this point in the podcast, we'll go back to the discussion with Ken, but we just didn't have enough time to get to these. Ken had to go work on his farm, but I really wanted to show those two studies in the podcast because um, Ken had advanced them in the past. We talked about them after the podcast, and I wanted to put them in here. I guess it kind of comes back to the what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. My ancestors are primarily Mediterranean, Sicilian, and that's not equatorial. It's it's right. more. It's probably it's further south than than Anglo-Saxon ancestors, but um, you know Northern European. But I I kind of got the sense earlier that that and, and correct me if this is wrong that you think that because of my extreme exercise, I can eat this much carbohydrate or that's somehow protective. Uh, well, maybe think, that's something. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, definitely, I think that's true because in order to do a high intensity sport like surfing for two hours right. a day, it is, you have to, by definition, hold a much higher body fat percentage or body musculature percentage. You have right. to be much more muscular. And we all know that the more muscle that you have, the more places you have uh, to 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 push the glucose out of your out of your blood, your your yeah. serum. That absolutely, yeah. no doubt. And so, somebody who's under muscled and over fattened, yeah, that's that's not they're not going to be able to eat two three hundred grams of, of of fruit and honey a day. Absolutely not. They're going to. Or would I recommend that for them? Exactly right. That's right. Yeah. And so, I think so many people, Paul, have been looking forward to this because they wanted you and I to get each other in a headlock. And I'm, I'm sorry to everybody watching that that's not happening because I, I consider Dr. Saladino to be a, an honest and earnest and ethical researcher and explorer. He's looking, he's, and that's the same thing I'm doing. We're both doing this. And that the fact that we currently disagree about a few, a few things, like literally we agree on the vast majority of, of topics that you could bring up in human nutrition but the fact that we disagree on a few things, I think that's actually quite healthy and quite good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so Paul's, his DNA is from the Mediterranean, which although it's further north, because of the, the wind and the ocean currents, it's a, it's a very tropical feeling place. I've been there several times and there's, there's not a disastrous winter. Like if you go to where my people came from, your ass would freeze to death if you tried to surf. In, in nine months out of the year, your ass would be front. You'd be an ice cube. It just wouldn't happen. But on the Mediterranean, 
even though it's further north, it's it's a much more tropical like climate. And they, in fact, they can grow tropical fruits around the Mediterranean, even at that high latitude because of the ocean and the wind currents. Where my where my people came from, no, that's not going to work at all. It's very fascinating. And then you yeah. try to tease out: does that is does that matter a little bit, or does that matter a lot, or is that is that literally the most important thing? We don't know. We don't know, and that's why we do these kind of discussions, and that's why he and I got our nose in the in the papers and in the books every day, trying to figure out this 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 ephemeral thing, a proper human diet. What is it? But I love what we came to earlier before people get too confused and despondent and say, what am I supposed to do? How do I know if I can eat fruit or honey or I can't? I think we already kind of already arrived at a, at a good, at a good kind of foundation for the discussion, which is, and, and correct me if you feel differently about this, which is, Hey, we, we have really good lab studies that will, that will tell you really beyond a shadow of your doubt, yep. of a doubt, how your body is reacting to what you're doing. I think yep. people should also not discount their own subjective experience. My subjective experience is just my subjective experience. Uh, I had muscle cramps and sleep disturbance and, and testosterone declining on keto, but I've seen lots of people saying that they do great on keto. And so that there, I think that there probably is some genetic variability here. So I think my yep. perspective, and I'd love for you to add yours, Ken, and I, I want to get to this honey paper before we wrap up too, is that, hey, think about your own subjective experience. You know, do you gain weight? Um, eating fruit and honey, or do you not gain weight eating fruit and honey, provided that you have a low linoleic acid diet? Like that's very critical that people understand. This is not in the context of, at least for the purposes of this of this discussion, this is not in the context of you eating junk food or you eating seed oils yeah. uh, or you eating lots of linoleic acid, which can even hide in things like chicken and pork fat. When those are fed yeah, and is it safe to say, Paul, that the only linoleic acid you ever ingest comes from animal meat. You never ingest linoleic acid from any other source. That's the only source. And I'm so careful about it that I don't eat chicken fat or, or pork fat because those animals have higher amounts of linoleic acid because they're fed corn and soy. That's kind of a granular discussion and I don't want it to. But I think that's very important. And I think uh, back to the normal distribution curve, I think there's a, a large subset of the population, perhaps even including the fat middle of the curve, who should really limit pork and chicken because those monogastric uh, animals do not have the the, the 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 high degree and the high um, the, of of bovine fat and and ruminant animal fat. I just think it's a better quality fat. I totally agree with that. Now I have occasional chicken leg or chicken thigh, uh, but but it's it's just look. Sometimes I just want to eat one. I I don't ever eat chicken versus beef because I think the chicken is better, uh, nutritionally speaking, right? Never does that happen. And so I, I agree with Dr. Saladino, probably all of us should either maximize ruminant animals or depending, and I'd love your input on this, or depending on your, your DNA and ancestry, have a predominantly seafood animal-based diet. Do you think that there's a subset of the population that the majority of their food should come from the ocean? Perhaps historically, but this is where we run into, from my perspective, problems in 2022, because when I've worked with people who are pescatarian, their heavy metals were through the roof. And the more I learn about fish, the, 
the sadder I become because I've had some really good king salmon in my life and it's fun to fish. Um, yeah. But there's microplastics, there's perfluoroalkylated substances, yes. which are kind of like the equivalent of bisphenols, different substances. They're called forever chemicals, they're endocrine yep. disruptors and the heavy metals. And all of these tend to concentrate in the fish. So I have some real concerns about people eating fish as the majority of their diet. Yeah. And I have to, those same concerns, Doc. Yeah. Uh, and well, obviously there's there's ample anthropological evidence that that humans ate predominantly seafood-based diets for hundreds of generations. But my argument and probably yours would be that tribe or that 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 people they were trapped in, geographically. They didn't have an option. They didn't have the megafauna to hunt, so they had to eat the, the seafood or starve. And seafood's much preferable to starving. Uh, and I, I think that's probably what we're seeing in the literature is that they were just trapped geographically and they had no other option. Well, you're thinking of people like the Inuit? Well, the Inuit, and then there's there's a, there's ample studies around the Mediterranean, uh, Northern Africa, um, and and kind of the, the Middle East, where there were there were populations who they would have literal mountains of of mollusks and, and oyster and shellfish shells that they had, and, you know, it, the, the anthropologists initially thought it was some kind of religious thing. And it, eventually they were like, no, they were just eating the hell out of shellfish. And I, I think in those, but in those instances, were we there long enough, enough generations that that could evolutionarily have become optimal? Probably not, probably not. But I, I have ran into a few people who they definitely feel better if a large percentage of their, their animal-based diet is seafood. And they obviously avoid all of the, the big carnivore fish that, that are, have eaten hundreds and hundreds and thousands of little fish so they don't accumulate the mercury. They're eating smaller sardines, anchovies, cod, uh, mackerel, herring. Uh, but, you know, is there is there a subset that need to include seafood? Or could we all do we do all of us do best on a ruminant based diet? I don't know the answer to that one. I think that one's probably still up for debate. Hard to say. Hard to say. My diet is exclusively ruminants right now, just because I think of them as the cleanest animals. There's high profile cases of people like Tony Robbins who got, yep. you know, mercury toxicity yep. from eating fish and stuff. So I think that. Yep. And yeah. Let me just say, when, when Dr. Saladino says the cleanest animal, he's not speaking from a religious context. I know a lot of people just heard that because that's an echo of their religious beliefs. He means that the multi-chamber stomach, correct me if I'm not speaking for you, but I think I am, the multi-chamber stomach of the ruminant animals processes what they eat, especially if they're eating a, a species-appropriate diet. It processes it in a way that what's left in their fat and protein is just the ultimate human food. Is that that's what you meant by cleanest? Yeah, that that if animals are eating what they're meant to eat or what they've eaten evolutionarily. So there's this overarching question of whether what an animal has eaten throughout its life is the optimal diet for the animal. To me, that makes a lot of sense intuitively, but there are people who debate that, which is why I think discussions around what humans may have eaten, though we can't know for sure, are, are important and might give us some indication. I think it's pretty clear that ruminants like elk or deer, or buffalo, bison is more accurate. Cows are grass animals. They, they've eaten grass their whole life, and they're meant to eat grass. And they're not really meant to eat grains uh, anywhere near in the amounts that we feed them or at all. I mean, some grass, as it goes to seed, they're going to get some grains 
historically, but not the type of grains that we would feed them. And, and we can see that in the animals. So when I say clean animals, I mean animals that are eating their real species-appropriate diet. Chickens just don't do that anymore. Pork doesn't do that anymore. A wild fish does that, but we talked about the potential drawbacks of a wild fish. A, a farm-raised fish is absolutely not, not doing that. And um, so that's what I mean when I say clean animals, that they're, you can give them grass and, and hopefully you can source from a place that has grass year-round, that's green, that has water, and, and that kind of thing for the cows and get a clean animal. Because unfortunately, I think there's different levels to this, like you said, and unfortunately it's not enough today for a lot of people to just eat meat or eat meat and fruit, but you have to know where it's coming from. A point about the honey earlier that probably is evident to most people, when we're talking about honey, we're talking about raw, unfiltered, unprocessed honey. There's some really interesting research on honey and how the consumption of honey increases nitric oxide metabolites in humans. There appears to be some nitric oxide precursors in honey. And that could be a good thing if we think about endothelial function and inducible nitric oxide synthase in the endothelium of blood vessels. So the fact that honey increases nitric oxide in the human body is probably a good thing. Um, there's also evidence that honey can increase testosterone, at least in small trials that are randomized. And when you process the honey, meaning when you heat it or if it's stored in glass that's exposed to light for too long, those properties tend to go away. No surprise there. Honey is probably a food that spoils like anything else. And, and when we're talking about honey, the ideal type of honey would, would be those raw, unfiltered, unprocessed, carefully treated honeys, also preferably from a farm that doesn't have glyphosate in the agriculture around the farm. So there's a lot of things to think about with regard to the honey. Yep. And so basically 99% of any honey that you could buy in any grocery store is not what Dr. Saladino is talking about. And that's one of the reasons why I just say don't eat honey is because mo the vast majority of people are not going to be able to travel and eat honey with the Hadza out of the tree of life. They're just not going to be able to do that. Uh, I would love to have some beehives here on OB Farms, but... If even if I did that, it would definitely help the pollination of all my other plants, my grasses and everything. It would be I, I'm still going to do it, but I probably won't eat the honey because I know that a quarter mile away from here, there are soybean fields and corn fields and and mm -hmm. and cotton that are just doused with glyphosate. And that's tough. Bee, bees are not smart. They don't. They just go to where the pollen is. They don't understand what we understand. And so even though I'll use the bees and let them work on my farm and increase the productivity. Uh, of my farm, I'm probably not going to eat that honey. And I don't think most people should eat honey unless they can eat it in its pristine condition, at least 20 miles from a glyphosate uh, monocrop farm. And so what that leaves us with is virtually no honey that the average person who listens to me on YouTube or any other social media, there is no honey that meets that criteria. And so that's why for me, I find it easier to just say, don't eat honey. There's a little bit out there, but you're, that's a fair point, um, Ken. If you search glyphosate-free honey, there's, I think hopefully there's more of this happening, but there, there is a certification now. Um, there's a company that I have no affiliation with called Heavenly Organics that says their honey is glyphosate-free. If, if I don't say I have no affiliations, people will definitely think that I'm right. a shill for a shill for a honey company. For I've, been honey. Right, right. I've been accused of it in the past, but Heavenly Organics has glyphosate-free honey. And uh, I guess that's one of the things I like about living where I live. Uh, people, not everyone has the freedom to travel and 
and live in, in Central America where I am. Um, and I understand that, that the, the nuances of the diet may be different where you are. But um, the nice thing about being here is that there are producers who say, yeah, this honey is from a farm up in the mountains of Costa Rica. There's nothing around because I live in a place that, that has pockets where there's a six-mile radius or a six-mile diameter where there's no farms using glyphosate. So yeah, but I think it's important to consider. Um, I just wanted to complete an earlier thought just to bring it full circle for people that we've talked about a lot of things today and, and shared um, views where we agree, meat, organs, um, maybe even, you know the avoidance of vegetables for people. We, we shared um, different perspectives on fruit and honey, but I think that we, we, we have a lot in common and, and we can see where some people may may even benefit or, or use those things in their diets and where they, I think we both see where they might be inappropriate for people as well. But the, the last point that I wanted to make so that people aren't left feeling like they're adrift is that uh, we have these good lab metrics. And just to reiterate that, I think fasting insulin, from my perspective, is the easiest one. If you gain weight eating fruit and honey, okay, not for you, assuming you have a low linoleic acid diet at baseline. Um, if you don't gain weight eating honey and you feel good or you can get some glyphosate-free honey or you don't gain weight eating fruit, from my perspective at least, it may be a good thing for you, but check your fasting insulin and make sure it didn't move. Um, I think that I'd love to see more anecdotes from people. A, a, a formal study would be great and, and we're working on doing a formal study. I built a nonprofit called the Animal-Based Nutrition Research Foundation. It's abnrf.org. And we've got a study plan with Stefan Van Vliet at Utah State University who's actually done a lot of great research with Fred Provenza talking about these uh, polyphenols in meat that Ken was mentioning earlier. So we're going to do some studies with animal-based diets um, in the future for autoimmune disease in particular. But I think that if people are lost at sea and they're not sure, look, if you're feeling good, don't change anything. If, you're, if you want to explore things, just use the way you feel and, and those basic lab metrics as, as a litmus. And I think you'll be able to tell if, if this type of an approach works for you or, or which one might work for you better. And then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Ken, and you can add whatever you want to that. But I just wanted to give people some sort of a, sure, a baseline yeah. or a foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Dr. Saladino mm -hmm. and I both totally agree that it, and I'm not opposed to the Saladino modified animal-based diet, but I want you to check your labs. And and I want, I want to know what your waist to height ratio is. And I want to know what your triglycerides, your HDL, your A1C and your fasting insulin, and plus or minus the C-peptide, I need to know what those are after 90 days of lots of, of fruit and honey. And if those numbers are still great, then there you go. Keep doing what you're doing. If you feel great, you look great, your numbers are great, then currently at this place in your life, that's exactly what you should be doing. But if those numbers start to move in the wrong direction, which for me, I know they would, and for, for many of my people, if, who, if they're listening to this because I was on it, I encourage you, if you're like, well, I like Saladino's idea, get your numbers checked, do the diet for 90 days, recheck your numbers, and then have an honest conversation with yourself. How do I feel? How have I been sleeping? Does it feel like my testosterone went up or down? What is Check your, check your testosterone, pre and total, and sex hormone binding globulin. Uh, check those numbers. And if after 90 days you're like, dude, all my numbers are still great and I feel better, then that's that that's the animal based way of eating for you. That's your proper human diet. I, I don't fault people for wanting to experiment of all the experiments you could do with your diet. This experiment, if you wanted to do this for 90 days, this is the least bad experiment. I have I don't I have no doubt. I have no fear 
that you're going to cause a, an autoimmune condition by eating more fruit. All you're going to do is, is spike your blood sugar and, and perhaps eat too, eat too much fructose for your personal biochemistry. You're not going to cause inappropriate inflammation by eating more fruit. You're just going to potentially raise your fasting insulin, raise your triglycerides, raise your A1C, your blood sugar, and your waist height ratio is going to go in the wrong direction. That's the worst. Maybe not, right? <laughs> we don't know. That's right. That's But I'm saying that's the worst yeah. that can happen. Yeah. Now, yeah. people are trying to get you to eat pea protein and soybeans and wheat and, and lots of, of plant-based oils. Do not do that. Do not experiment with that. I'm afraid that could actually spur uh, permanent or semi-permanent medical complications from doing that. But then, if you want to experiment with this diet, do it for 90 days and please report back to, to both Dr. Saladino and I, not who was right and who was wrong, but what worked best for you personally. Yeah, I think I think you're 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 totally right, Ken. That there's probably going to be things that work differently for different people, and maybe and and this is part of what we're doing. I wish I wish we weren't stumbling around in the dark, but at least we're stumbling around in the dark. At least we're looking for things in the dark and not just um, yeah. not just abandoning the search. But I think that there, there's a lot of unanswered questions here that remain around: Is it a latitude thing? Is it where I live? Is it uh, is it individual for people? It is a species wide effect like what is it and 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 what um what is optimal for any individual listening to this and i think that that's the whole reason that i got interested in doing this stuff and i imagine you did also is because mainstream western medicine doesn't do a good job of individualizing medical care they just say hey your ldl is 165 paul you need a statin and i say wait a minute i'm very insulin sensitive i think that the individualization of medical care and of nutritional thinking is, is where it's at for people. And, um, that, that I think is where people are going to really win the day that, that people are really going to benefit by, by thinking what works for them, what doesn't work for them, as long as they have hard metrics, you know, some subjective metrics, but also some, whether it's fat, I think fasting insulin is probably the best metric to look at and maybe a visceral fat with the DEXA or something. If you have those things, I think you're really going to be able to navigate this very well, but Unfortunately, Western medicine won't even give you those tools. They'll just say diet has nothing to do with your diabetes or, you know, you should eat, you should drink diet Coke and not regular Coke if you have diabetes and kind of end the, the nutritional discussion there. They won't discuss seed oils or processed sugars or processed grains or any of these things. And so um, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of benefit for people yeah, in all of this. I, I think giving people lots of different tools is critical because um, I think there's even people out there who don't need to cut out vegetables, who might be able to eat vegetables. They might have more resilience or maybe the plant defense chemicals and vegetables won't be bad for them. But yep. I think that it's worth trying to cut out vegetables for most people to see if you're leaving something on the table. Um, you know, it's worth trying to cut out carbohydrates. It's worth trying to cut out fruit and then reintroducing and seeing what, what you're doing. Because ultimately, like this is a really interesting experience that we get to have called life. And it's fun when the car goes fast. You know, the metaphor I'm using is like, it's fun when the car drives well. And, you know, why would you drive uh, a broken down car when you can drive a sports car? It, it's really meaningful to me to be able to at least give people things that make them curious about, yep. um, about, about what, how good they could be. Absolutely. And with that, I, I really want your opinion on the the carnivore diet folks who have been eating nothing but muscle meat, muscle and fat, no organs whatsoever for decades, and still 
seemingly are very, very healthy, if not optimally healthy. I, I currently can't explain that. I, I, I see them. I don't doubt their honesty. But at the same time, it makes a lot of damn sense to me. And when I, when I look at archaeology and, and anthropology, all of our people ate the organs. It was, there's just tons of lore. A, a pregnant woman, you always say this for her. The hunters get this. The, the old women get this. It just, it just has been going on since before recorded history. We ate the organs. And did we just eat those organs out of, to prevent starvation because we had to eat it all? Or is there, is there some physiology, a.k.a. magic, in the organs that we absolutely need to include them in into our diet. How do you explain the the muscle and fat eaters who never eat organs? How are they still okay? Well, I think like you said, perhaps they're outliers or perhaps we don't have all the information. I mean, some of the blood work I've seen from these people has folates that are like in the basement. They have almost no folate and their homocysteine is 12 or 13 or 14. And, um, and they don't seem terribly worried about that or, or concerned regarding, you know, metrics with MTHFR or homocysteine levels. And so, I mean, if, if, if they're willing to do full blood panels, I I'd happily pay for them to do a full blood panel and we can look at it, you know, and, and look at their, you know, look at their, their iron and their SHBG and, and, and look at their homocysteine levels and their folate. And there's no great way to really assay total body levels of riboflavin, perhaps we get, you know, it's called an egg rack test for riboflavin. But I do have concerns that, that there could be some low level deficiencies here that can cause issues long-term. Ultimately, if they're thriving, I'm happy for them. I just don't know that it works for a lot of people. And um, yep. it, it really concerns me. I really think we yeah, should try to include some organ meat, at least liver, at least eat liver a couple of times a week, if not other organs as well. That's my current recommendation. Uh, if you don't like liver, grow up and learn to like liver. I'm, I don't know what else to tell you. I, I really believe uh, that it's probably necessary to include at least some liver, if not other organ meats in your diet. So you'd love to get Sean Baker and check a full lab panel on him. And then also this argument, well, if you eat eggs, eggs contain all of the building blocks for every organ of the chicken. Yes, by definition, it has to. So if you're eating eggs, are you by proxy eating organs and getting all of the stuff that would prevent those those low-level deficiencies or egregious deficiencies? Uh, still, I've seen carnivores who just eat eggs and meat, and they have really, really low levels of folate, which worries me both for men and women. Uh, so it, it is concerning. And if you don't like liver, I mean... Get desiccated organs. We got hardened soil for you all day long. You know, like we got plenty of good desiccated organs for you guys that don't like liver. I'd rather you eat the fresh stuff, but uh, you know, there's there's options out there for you. And yeah, I mean, Sean and I um, have collaborated a lot in the past, and I would love for him to uh, to do a full blood panel and talk about the stuff. But ultimately, he's thriving, and I trust him when he says that. So I'm happy for him. I just think that uh, kind of like we talked about in this podcast, I I think that perhaps the best position to take is to say to people, Hey, here's an option for you. Um, there's door a door B and door C and, and find out what works best for you with both subjective, the way you feel and objective metrics. And, and you and I can define objective metrics, you know, fasting insulin, blood levels of folate, homocysteine, et cetera, depending on what condition we're looking for. But I think if you do those things, 
you're well on your way and, and making an intentional choice with regards to diet is a huge step in the right direction. Absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's a good place to wrap it up. Any closing thoughts, Ken, before we uh, put a bow on this one? No, you, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. It's always a pleasure. It's been a pleasure since the first time we did this on Facebook. Absolutely. Four or five man. years ago, back when we were both young punks and didn't know shit about fuck. But <laughs> we're, you know, we're, I, I feel like we're closer now, but I, we're definitely not there yet. We need to keep looking. We need to keep experimenting. We keep, need to keep learning and researching and, and, and we need to keep checking labs. And that's how we're ultimately going to rediscover a proper human diet, something that humans took for granted. It's like, duh, this is what you eat, dude. Don't be stupid. Now we've, we've been confused. We went through that that bottleneck of the younger Dryas, and then now we've got every corporation in the world yelling at us that we need their product. Or if you eat this, then you'll need their product later. Either way, they win. And and so it's just it, the water is so muddy. that. And what I don't want, and I know you don't want this either, is to, to try to make this so complicated that people just say, fuck it. I don't even know what, what they're talking about. I can't do that. I don't have access to that. I, you know, I can't do that. So I'm just going to eat whatever. Cause that's, that's definitely not my goal or Dr. Saladino's goal. Never ever is to confuse you and make this sound so complicated that you've got to buy all these supplements or all this stuff or all that. You don't need any of that. Just stop eating sugar, stop eating grains, stop eating vegetable seed oils. Cover the majority of your plate with meat, preferably ruminant meat. If you want to have some pork or chicken, it, occasionally it's probably not the end of the world, but you probably don't want to make that the predominant meat that you eat. Put some butter on it. Literally, bacon's okay in moderation. It's fine. What, what any other just common sense, A, B, C, one, two, three, keep it simple, and then we can all debate and, 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 and experiment about the minutia. That's fine. But what are the basic principles you want people to just know? This is one, two, and three, and we can discuss the rest later. Yeah, I agree. I think that ultimately people make intentional choices with regard to their diet and have some sort of a, a North Star to head toward, and they're going to get healthier. And that's ultimately what we want. So Thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. And as always, I look forward to hanging out with you in person soon. We should get you down to Costa Rica. Hey, let's do it.